0: Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do But what about the names who spent their whole lives Longstamping footballs and catching sacrifice They're guys, Remember 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 that guy 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 just gonna remember some guys now now ray guy comes in for his first punt of the day kick is away there's a high twisting remember that guy the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present hey there folks it's me james for the hundredth time one of your hosts and i think this time i have earned the right punt away fitting this intro
1: look we want to play it safe so we're going to make a fair catch back here we need to secure this centennial episode diaz so happy to be with you once again we do have a very special guest. It's actually the man who was severely concussed because of the lack of the fair catch rule. He's the reason it exists today, and he's our very special guest. Please introduce yourself.
2: Ooh, I don't know that one, actually. But regardless, it's me, the very special guest, Xavier.
1: I probably think it's not a specific guy. And, like, do you remember when, like, they had to change all the football rules because so many people were dying? I'm willing to guess, like, at least six of those where people just getting absolutely clobbered on kicks. Well,
2: There's a jet that was paralyzed like that. Um, Dennis, Bird. Jer- D- Dennis, Dennis Bird.
1: Dennis Bird. I don't know why the name Jericho Cotri came to mind. Maybe because of like, the overlap of Jericho and wrestling, in my mind, and also the horrible potential for injury in wrestling. I and I just Jericho Cotri, I just love as a football name, period. It is a very good name.
0: It is an incredible name, and Jericho Cautry, an incredible guy. But speaking of kickoffs, I would like to kick off this momentous occasion by finding out what is making memories for you right now. And I say that seeing who's going to respond, because I didn't gesture at anyone.
1: Well, I'm curious. I'm going to go first, because there's something that I want to talk about. And Xavier confirm or deny if this was on your rundown. But we need to talk about an incredible happening in Lincoln, Nebraska this past week. It was Nebraska-Omaha, famously the University of Steve Jenham, that made the trek to Lincoln to face off against the Huskers in an early season matchup. What made this one special is that they didn't play it indoors. They played it outdoors at the football stadium, where the Huskers frequently play. This was for a couple of reasons, I'm sure. Uh, First and primarily, to put the focus on women's sports that it deserves. This was the record for the most attended Women's sporting event in the history of America. History of the great world, I believe. History of the world, even, which is incredible. I thought there might have been a women's world cup that might have passed it. I, I love it that broke... it
0: happened immediately after the women's world cup. Like we had all of this high already from that, and they were like, nope, ninety two thousand and three here in Nebraska.
2: I believe it broke the record for Barcelona women's team that we set last year.
1: Yeah, that I remember reading that now at Camp New. But no, a fantastic performance. And obviously we love to see the game continue to grow. What we always say about women's sports is if you build it, they will come. And the Cornhuskers came to the tune of 92,000 plus. But I think really the reason that they wanted to get that in there is because Nebraska football hasn't been too hot lately. I think they wanted to see at least one win in that arena. So why not bring in the powerhouse program, which, you know, let it not be unsaid Nebraska volleyball, You probably go Penn State volleyball, number one, in terms of dynastic programs. But Nebraska would be the second program right behind there. Four titles in the past 22 years, constantly winning whatever conference they're in now. Again, realignment has gotten so silly. Is it the Big Ten now? So you have that great rivalry with Penn State in the Big Ten for women's volleyball. But, look, we love to see it continue to support women's sports. It's really not that hard. It's really awesome when you do it and uh, you get to see some incredible atmospheres like that. So, you know, may it not be the last memory that's made. I want to see that record broken 10 times over. Hopefully let's continue to empower women's athletes to make memories for us.
0: My favorite thing was that like almost immediately a bunch of Tennessee Vols fans were like, we can beat 92,000. Honestly, cool. Awesome. Do it. That's a good record to try and break.
1: We're going to have petty measuring contests. Let's, let's, let's do let's it in support it of women's use. sports. Yeah. Exactly. Was that one of the things that you wanted to talk about, Xavier?
2: No, I actually thought that James was going to talk about that, so I had left that off my list.
0: As had I, for the opposite reason.
2: <laughs> I'm happy but, that that's my brand now, though. Like People try to avoid talking about women's sports because they think that I'm going to do it.
0: Well, here, I'll I'll go ahead and say what Diaz is hinting at, which is that I sent him a text message today guessing the three things you were going to bring up. And clearly I missed on one. That's fine. Xavier, would you mind telling us what's making memories so I can see whether I'm correct with the other two? Oh,
2: I've got so many that I'm going to kind of... All right, so weekly, what the hell's going on in Spain update? Uh, Rubiales's mother went on a hunger strike protesting the treatment of her son or the perceived treatment of her son. She locked herself in a church and refused food and water until she passed out and had to be taken to a hospital a couple days later. Uh, Let
1: let me interject here, because there's conflicting reports on the actual severity of her condition. There's a lot of reports that she just got up and walked out, and that it was then reported that she had passed out to help accentuate the drama. Now, I'm not saying which version is true or the other. I just want to be clear for this podcast that both versions of that story do exist out there and the listener can choose which they want to
0: believe.
2: Yeah, well it's still a massive shit show. Like the Spanish courts came out and said that it's only a quote serious situation and a, not a very serious situation, which in under Spanish law means that they can't actually remove him from his position as president. So he is still the president of the Spanish Federation because it's only I'm, a, quote, serious situation.
1: I'm, I'm just imagining, like, you know, we have, like, the terrorist response thing here, and the Spanish, they have their same chart, where it just says, serio, muy serio. Muy serio. Serísimo. Mucho muy serio. <laughs> Serísimo is the worst one.
2: It, it's wild. Can't really trust anything with Spain right now. It's, this is going to be going on for a much longer time, so I'll probably be bringing this up again in the future. Second weekly update. We have some clarity on realignment. SMU, Cal, and Stanford have joined the ACC, making it the Atlantic Coast Conference with a team in Texas and two in California on the Pacific Coast. ACPC? I mean, the one that people say is just all-coasts conference. makes the most sense to just keep it as ACC. But the funniest part about this is, so allegedly they're getting like 90 million or so from ESPN for these three teams. 30 million each in order to finally get enough votes to pass this, the way they're doing it is Cal and Stanford are taking like 10% distributions for a couple of years and then 30% and then escalating. SMU is taking no media revenue for nine years. They will not be getting a cent until about 2033, which is about two years before the ACC's grant of rights expires if it's still even in effect by then. There's a good chance that the ACC collapses before SMU sees a cent of media revenue for this deal. But apparently they have rich enough boosters that they were able to do it. And North Carolina State flipped and became the deciding vote. UNC, Clemson, and Florida State have put out statements essentially saying, this is a bad idea, but we respect our fellow conference mates, but we still hate that this is happening. You know, really great that you chose to make a expansion decision that alienated your possibly your three most valuable brands who are still going to try to get out of it as much as they can. So ACC has these teams for now. We'll see what happens. I don't know. The American said that they're not going to go out west and not get Oregon State and Washington State, which means that they're almost certainly going to the Mountain West. There have been some rumors that Mike Rescue is really trying to get Army to join, which as an Army and Temple fan who loves going to Mikey Stadium, I would love that, but we'll see. I don't know. We're going to have a Super League very soon, so no one get too comfortable with your conferences unless you're in the SEC or Big Ten. The other two things I want to talk about real quick, U.S. Open is on. Very fun. Francis Tiafoe, great. I was watching him earlier. I'm watching Coco Golf literally right now. She's struggling a bit but hoping that she can get this break and take this second set after losing the first set. And also, we haven't talked at all about the FIBO World Cup. Latvia. Latvia has beaten both France and Spain. Yeah, because France doesn't have Wemby. They still
0: have 10 other NBA players. I don't know. They don't have their best player. Neither does Latvia. I know. I just wanted to say that about France.
1: Tony Parker is retired. You're right, James.
0: Tony, Tony Parker... In like three years might not be the best French spur of all time. (laughs) Tony Parker is the John Smoltz of the Atlanta Big Three who like, look, is good, is very good, and is in the Hall of Fame because he was part of a trio where the other two teammates were demonstrably better.
1: But Latvia upsetting the French, the French losing in general, I'm, I'm broadly a fan of.
2: And beating Spain too. And I mean, they're in the second group stage right now, which is weird because it carries over your wins from the first group stage. So, like, even though Puerto Rico has won their only game over the Dominican in this group, they're still technically in last place of their group because Serbia and the Dominican had won both their games in the previous group. But it's interesting. There is a very good chance that we have, of the 8 quarterfinalists, five from the Americas. This is important because only the top two finishing teams from the Americas make the Olympics. So Brazil, Canada, USA, Dominican, Puerto Rico, there's a good chance like they have a semi-final run. And for any other confederation, that also gives you an Olympic berth. It's like, oh, wait, no, you don't even make it if you make the semis. You could get third place and not go to the Olympics because first ends up being Brazil versus the U.S. It, it's, they should figure out a way to fix that because it just seems that the best teams really are in the Americas and they do not have enough representation in like the Olympics for the talent level that they have.
1: Anti-Borico
2: discrimination.
1: That's all, that's all it is. You
2: know, we just got to beat Italy. Go into the quarterfinals. And by we, I mean Puerto Rico. USA is going to the quarterfinals already. Doesn't matter. Puerto Rico,
0: Italy, a very classic New York matchup.
2: A very classic me matchup. This is literally <laughs> my dad versus my mom.
0: And you are New York, Xavier. You beautiful melting pot, you.
2: Well, with that being said, all these things that are making memories for me. James, what is making memories for you?
0: I, too, have a few. It is the first week of college football, and I don't care about very much in that. But I do care about the fact that Notre Dame quarterback Sam Hartman is wearing a necklace made of his own rib. And his I had this rib removed for blood clots and not deflate myself t-shirt is raising a lot of questions that should be answered by the shirt. So that's Sam Hartman at Notre Dame. Uh, there are a couple things I'm compelled to speak about, unfortunately, because I have painted myself into a corner. Guess what? We have an end to the butt buzzing saga, my friends. A settlement has been reached in the world of chess between all various parties. Chess.com, Hans Niemann, Magnus Carlsen, Hikaru Nakamura. Uh, chess.com has reinstated Hans Niemann. Said now, our studies never found that he cheated in person slash over the table. That's the specific terminology they use, but in person is what it means. Hans Neiman kind of crowed about how this largely looked like a victory for Magnus Carlsen Has said he will play him if they match up. Hikaru Nakamura, glad to be done with this. He's free to focus on his feud with the Botez sisters. And I'm just going to leave that forever because I don't want to get involved in another weird chess story. I must speak on my arch nemesis, Fanatics. Because they did close their acquisition of points bet this week, just in time for the NFL season, $225 million to acquire it. Speaking of money, though, this you know, manufacturer of jerseys that also now has these betting platforms, they've set up this thing called FanCash, where you can win fan cash by participating oh, in fanatic space betting mm-hmm. thing. You know, spend around them. Uh, I have a quote from the Simpsons that I think sums that up. Well, it's money that's made just for the park. It works just like regular money, but it's uh, fun. So that's that's <laughs> summing it up. I have a different Simpsons clip that I'd like to share with my particular thoughts about it. It stinks! It stinks! It stinks! So there we go. Thank you very much, Simpsons, for helping me share my thoughts on fanatics as that continues. Mostly, I would like to take a moment to talk about the upcoming Professional Women's Hockey League. Announced back around early July, I talked about it for a moment, I went back and listened to that episode, and I don't know if I was having a stroke or something, but I was unintelligible for like 30 seconds, so I want to take a moment to speak a little bit more. Uh, I would say, first off, as I did then, if you want to hear like a full breakdown of the kind of history that went into this and a lot more of the implications, the July 4th episode of the podcast, the gist of it, very, very good breakdown of that, much, much further in depth by people who know a lot more about this, but basically... January 2024, we are going to have a league. It is going to have its own original six, much like the NHL. Philly, I am sorry to say, guys, did not get one of the teams. Meaning that we are left with six locations to throw our support behind. we got Boston, the twin cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. The New York area hasn't been nailed down specifically when in New York. They might be trying to get some of that Connecticut-Hartford heat while also getting the New York and Long Island area. Uh, Mont Toronto and Ottawa. Those are the six. Now, while obviously I despise Boston and don't have too many good sports fans with the New York area, it did feel very perfect in this moment with the original six to truly just like leave this up to the whims of fate. And so I have procured myself a six-sided die that's currently in my hand. <laughs> And I'm going to figure out which one of these PWHL teams is now the one that I will ride or die for. We're going in order of what I said. Boston is one, Minneapolis-St. Paul two, New York area three, Montreal four, Toronto five, and Ottawa six. Let's see what we get. That is a three. We're going with the New York area one. The other five of you, get fucked. Ooh, we need to
2: have Diaz roll now, too, because obviously I'm going New York.
0: I will say, I'm now very much holding out hope that they do indeed focus on this Connecticut connection.
1: (laughs) I cannot identify as a Bostonian. I cannot identify as a New York area -er. (laughs) And I'm definitely not going to identify as a Canadian. So I guess we're we're left with the Twin Cities. Let's go Minneapolis. (laughs) (laughs) Go fighting Minnesotans. Beat the fuck out of those Boston
0: <laughs> <laughs> It's Hey, we can all gang up on Boston now. The three of us, anti-Boston PWHL team. Uh, also, by the way, this is just a fun fact about it. So they're currently, they are working to find six different GMs, one for each franchise. You'll notice I didn't say owners, I said GMs. Because the whole thing is owned by one of the co-owners of the Dodgers, Mark Walter. He just owns the entire league and there's getting six different GMs to fight against them. I guess if you own all the teams, that eliminates the competitive de-incentivization that it does if you just have a couple of them. So it should be does,
1: fine. Does he still get to raise the title first, like the way the owner always gets to raise the title first in American sports?
0: Well, I, I was going to say, I would assume that, does he then decide that he becomes the person who like presents the trophy? Because he gets to hold it during like that, that walk down the carpet if they set it up? <clears throat> Does I he just make he, himself commissioner? I
1: well, he he is the de facto commissioner, I guess, because usually the commissioner just serves the whims of the owners. So if he's also the owners, it would be easiest to just remove that middleman.
0: It's fascinating. I am looking forward to it. I made an effort to get into professional hockey a little bit and kind of because of the fact that neither of the two leagues were doing great and it was not easy to watch. And also they were kind of like competing against one another. It was difficult in my initial attempts. I'm looking forward to making another honest attempt here at PWHL. But speaking of things that we are attempting to do, it is time for us to see whether or not we can wrap up season seven of this beloved show that we have been doing one more time. I'm just going to let us pat ourselves on the back for 100 episodes, that's a hundred episodes. as a day. Diaz, it is your turn to lead off the category. And I am so thoroughly excited in the very stupid idea that we have today.
1: Yes. And let's be clear this is my introduction, but this is not my topic. This is one that was preordained from the beginning, the nation steps of this podcast. We knew that if we were to get to episode 069, there's only one thing that we could discuss. This podcast has always been about remembering that guy. But now we want to remember those guys. We have a very specific topic, guys named guy. It can be a first name. It can be a last name. It can be guy. I think we'll let you get away with Guy. Again, we're not very pro-French here, but we'll let you get away with the Guy just for this topic. No, we're thrilled to remember these guys this week. And to kick it off, I want to talk about football guy i think it's probably one of our favorite subsets of guys is just the guy that is sport guy when it gets down to it a a football guy is not simply somebody who plays football it's somebody who thinks football breathes football conceptualizes parallels to their life through the metaphor of football and the guy that i want to talk about today certainly fought and won a ton of battles on the field but it's the battle that he's fought off the field and has continued to succeed in this battle for over 30 years that was the inspiration for me to bring him up this week i would like to talk about brent guy
0: brent guy this i was curious which one you're going with because i think football is probably the densest guy sport
1: it's that's actually curious because i feel like Hockey again. If we go with the geese, ah, true,
0: true, 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 true. There's a, There's lot, a
1: lot of, of There's a yeah. lot of geese. There's a lot of geese. Uh, a lot of Canadian geese. But we're not focused on them. We're focused on American football. We're focused on Brent Guy. Brent Guy. If we're gonna talk about a football guy, what state's he gonna be from? Next. Oklahoma. You know what? It's actually great that you said Oklahoma, James, because even though that is wrong, uh, <laughs> Xavier's right. <laughs> Xavier's right. Brent Guy, born September 5th, 1960.
0: <laughs> that was a very good way to let me down. That was very kind of you.
1: Well, we're going to get to it. Like it, it is, it is a great second. It is,
0: it is also as close as you can get to Texas without being Texas. It's basically a block that would make more sense to be Texas that they didn't do because that's where they'd put all the American Indians.
1: It's, it's Texas's cute little hat where he puts all of his racial issues and (laughs) disputes and just tucks them away in a corner. (laughs)
0: It's a fucking great start.
1: But Brent Guy, again, let's get back to it. September 5th, 1960, Brent Guy is born. He's born in Perryton, Texas. Going to go to high school at Booker high school in Booker, Texas. And he's a pretty standout defensive lineman. There gets a lot of interest, but He's not going to be able to stay in his home state. He's going to go up north to that little hat, and he's going to play at Oklahoma State.
0: Where the wind comes screaming down the plane?
1: Yes. <laughs> he, was, he was debating whether or not he wanted to dance with some wolves, but instead he wanted to dance with some offensive linemen in the trenches. He featured primarily as a defensive end. He sometimes would play linebacker. First three years, he's kind of in a backup role, but his senior year, he gets to come forward into a starting position. He's going to notch 103 tackles that senior season. But my favorite statistic from his senior season is he does get his only career interception, which he returns for two yards. So we very nearly got to see a fat guy touchdown by a guy who has Guy on his jersey, but he only made it two yards after the interception.
2: Well, how close was he to the end zone then? You said he was close, but if it was two yards... and
1: He's two <laughs> yards closer than he was when he caught it. If we think about it as when he catches it, he's zero yards close and then he's two yards closer. We're actually infinitely closer to a touchdown from a mathematical perspective. So he got infinitely close to getting that touchdown, but he wasn't able to find his way into the end zone. And as you may expect of a player that you know has this four-year collegiate career, only really starts as a senior. There's not a lot of interest in him on a professional level. So he's going to utilize his degree in hotel and restaurant administration for the first three years post-grad. But eventually, a football guy is going to get that itch. There's no amount of hotel and restaurant administration that you can do to quench that football hunger. So he accepts an offer to go back to Oklahoma State. He's going to rejoin head coach Pat Jones, who he played under, and now he's going to be an assistant coach for Coach Pat Jones. Spends the first two years as a graduate assistant. Then in 88, he gets to be the recruiting coordinator. But in 89, he's finally promoted to be the linebackers coach. So he has his own position group that he's specifically focused on. And like you would expect of a football guy, now that he has this group that is his focus, this is his baby, he has one focus in life, and it is to craft these linebackers into being the best player that he can possibly craft them into being. A guy wants to do nothing more than to foster the career of other guys. 89 season comes and goes, and he's working these 16 hours a day, seven days a week. I mean, he is like living in the office to a point that is borderline obsessive. And it's uh, in the 1990 season, his work habits are starting to maybe take a toll on him. There's one coach's meeting where all of a sudden coach guy he he just ha- he has a a vision that comes to him he thinks that he's ordained with this power that he can just look at the other coaches in the room and know if they're in or if they're out is this a guy that i want by my side or is a guy i don't want by my side he tries to explain this to the room and very quickly everybody in the room is realizing this guy is just going on and on and he's not making a whole lot of sense so head coach jones asks everybody to leave the room except for brent guy and uh, the strength coach, Rob Glass. To hear Coach Jones talk about it, he just says, I knew it was bizarre. I knew there was something going on that was not normal. It wasn't any kind of wild fit. He was just babbling nonsense. So Coach Jones called one of his doctor friends. Doctor friend observes and says, this is a more serious situation than you may realize. So they arranged to take Coach Guy to a psychiatric hospital. And while he's there, he's continuing to have these delusions and these hallucinations. When the attending doctor tells him, we're going to have to set up an IV here. We need to administer some drugs to help calm you down. Brent Guy's instinct was that this doctor was trying to kill him. Oh no. But thankfully, his wife overhears the commotion. His wife comes into the room and is able to convince him, hey, these, these doctors are here to help. They're not here to kill you. We need to settle down and we need to listen to what these doctors are trying to do. After... The doctors allow him to essentially write a manifesto on what's good and what's evil in the world. They're able to stick him with the IV. They're able to calm him down. After some time, he does finally calm down. He wakes up, he says, about 36 hours later in another room, and he sees the doctor. He sees his wife, and he just starts crying hysterically. After about a week here, what he is finally diagnosed with is bipolar disorder. Uh, essentially the most identifying characteristic is that you can have these super high highs where you're riding off of incredible energy and you can have these crazy lows where you barely have energy to even get up out of bed. BPD exists on a spectrum. There's people that fit different types and have different balances of the manic versus the depressive. And coach guy is much more on the manic side. Thankfully, after Going through a regiment, he finds a medication that works. And when he's ready to be released from the hospital, Coach Jones takes him back in, no questions asked, nothing to, hey, what did they diagnose you with, anything like that. It's just back to business as usual. So he returns to Stillwater. He has this diagnosis of bipolar disorder, but nobody's pressing for him to reveal it. And at the same time, he doesn't want to reveal it to anybody. There's obviously still today, but especially back in the late 80s, early 90s, we're talking about 1990 right now when he gets his diagnosis, such a stigma around mental health, mental illness, especially within some of these more stereotypically macho arenas like a football team, like a football locker room. He didn't want it to distract, basically he didn't want people to think that he was quote unquote soft which is you know a stigma that he was trying to overcome personally and you know he kind of just wants to put his head down and get to work for the 1990 1991 seasons continues as the linebacker coach at Oklahoma state managing this condition in silence finally in 1992 he gets hired at utah state uh, where he goes becomes the linebackers coach spends 3 years there under coach charlie weatherby In that time there, Utah State would win their first bowl game in program history with Coach Guy leading the linebackers. In 95, he comes back to Oklahoma State, again, retaking that linebacker post. And after three years there, he's finally get his first chance to be a defensive coordinator. In 1998, he gets hired to go to uh, Boise State, where he becomes a defensive coordinator. And at Boise State is where he kind of gets to show his chops as As a football coach, Boise State wins two conference championships, including their first Division I conference championship in school history in the time that he's there. For the final two years of his three-year stint in Boise State, they would finish first in total defense, first in scoring defense, and first in rush defense. So leading the dominant side of the ball there, Boise State would win back-to-back humanitarian bowl games in that span as well. Sorry, two consecutive
0: humanitarian bowls?
1: Back-to-back humanitarian bowls, which I think at that time were played on Boise State's field.
0: Okay, that, that would make more sense because I was just like, is getting a spot in this like a sort of Walter Payton award and they're just being given these humanitarian bowl appearances for, I don't know, raising charity money?
1: It is, it is full FPS. I mean, it's like, you know, the, the bad boy mowers bowl isn't necessarily the two best landscaping teams. Well, in sure, in the- but Bad
0: Boy Mowers is selling me something. Is Humanitarian Bowl selling me on the concept I of being a humanitarian? I looked it Because I'm, I'm down with it. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> it was
2: launched as the Humanitarian Bowl and wasn't sponsored by anybody. And then they had different t- people sponsored the Humanitarian Bowl. So it was the Crucial.com Humanitarian Bowl, Rhodey's Humanitarian Bowl, the You Drove Humanitarian Bowl, before just becoming the famous Idaho Potato Bowl. It was <laughs> It has now been sponsored for the last 13 years by the Idaho Potato <laughs> Commission. <laughs> There's no humanity left. There's just potatoes.
0: You know what, Idaho, Reject- I think that's probably correct.
1: Reject humanity, return to potato.
0: <laughs> Famous Idaho potatoes, anyway.
1: So, yeah, I mean, is it is it a little bit unique circumstance that Boise State gets to play this home bowl game? Maybe. But why does Hawaii get to be the only school that gets its own fancy game that people have to come into? I am in favor of the Humanitarian Bowl, now known as the famous Idaho Potato Bowl. But after he has these three years of success at Boise State, he's going to get an opportunity now to come up to a bigger level. So he's still going to be the defensive coordinator, but now he's going to be signed to Arizona State, taking a step up, joining the former Pac-10. Rip. R.I.P., The 2002 defense is probably the standout team from his time at Arizona State. They set school records for sacks and tackles for loss, and this has a lot to do with the schemes that are being developed, but admittedly, it probably has more to do with the fact that Baltimore Ravens legend Terrell Suggs is holding down the D-line and getting a lot of those sacks and tackles for loss, but... Somebody had to coach him up on technique. Somebody had to scheme him into the right matchups. and Somebody had to help him get into the backfield there. And a lot of it was his natural ability and strength and size, but a non-zero portion of it was the defense of Brent Guy.
0: Well, and this is interesting to me because up to this point, I had been under the impression that Terrell Suggs attended Ball So Hard University. So finding out that he was at Arizona State at the same time, double enrollment, that's really impressive.
2: With Arizona I think State, it's actually not that hard. To be fair to Arizona State or honest about what going to college at Arizona State is actually like.
1: It's at least spiritually, Arizona State has a lot of overlap with Ball So Hard University. I think there's, there's a lot of spiritual overlap there at least. He spends four years there, builds up their defense. Nine and three Arizona State's really coming in even stronger. They go to the Sun Bowl, which is played ironically. At the same Arizona place State. that t- Arizona State plays their home yeah. games, so there's something here. There's something about a football guy. Listen, it's it's somewhat rigged circumstances, but we don't care. It's a football guy. That's just a football guy doing football things in his football home, coaching football games, baby. They go nine and three. They win the Sun Bowl over Purdue, and now you know he's proven that he can lead a position. He's proven that he can lead an entire defense, but can he lead an entire program? That's what the Aggies wanted to find out, Utah State Aggies, when they hired Brent Guy to be their head coach in 2005. Now, I'm not going to beat around the bush, and I'm not going to try to hype things up here that don't need to be hyped up. This is not a good stint for Brent Guy. He goes 3-8 year one, 2-6 and six in conference. 1-11 year two, 1-7 in conference. Year three, they go 2-10, 2-6 in conference. And in year four, they go three and five in conference. It's by far the best conference mark, but they only go three and nine overall. And the rule of thumb with college coaches is you give them four years, and if after four years they brought in all of their guys and it's still not working out, probably time to move on. So he,
0: after four years you're averaging, by my mouth a two and nine record.
1: A, uh, a 2.25 and nine, because they're at nine wins. But, yeah, roughly a 2.25 and 9.5, actually. We want to be fully you mathematically You get one active.
2: extra quarter. It's bad. We don't, have, we, we don't have to haggle over getting an extra quarter win. It's bad.
1: It's not good. And, you know, with that being the case, Utah State, they decide it's finally time to move on. But he's not going to spend a lot of downtime. Louisville's going to hire him to come and be the linebackers coach for 2009. 2010, he's going to hop over to UNLV. He'll do the same thing there. And in 2011, he's brought aboard to Tulsa. He's still going to coach the linebackers, but he's also going to be in charge of that entire defense as the defensive coordinator again. 2012, Tulsa wins the CUSA championship. They finish ranked in the top 25, and they get a win over a major conference, not a major conference powerhouse. It's only Iowa State, but... Iowa State does represent the Big 12, which now has 10 schools, but at the time might have had like 14 schools. So hard to keep track of all of this. But they beat Iowa State. They win the Liberty Bowl. In that year, Tulsa's defense would set the program records, again, for sacks and tackles for loss. We're proving that it wasn't just Terrell Suggs. There's a little bit of magic to Brent Guy here. They finished second in the nation that year in sacks, as well as third in the nation in tackles for loss. So... Not just a thing where Tulsa hadn't done shit and then they did a little bit of shit. This was a genuinely very good defense. 2013, Sean Jackson becomes uh, Tulsa's all-time program leader in sacks again, thanks in small part to his ability, but in large part to the mentoring of Brent Guy. For the final three years that he's in charge of the defense, if you're to take the average, Tulsa is ninth in the country in tackles for loss. They're averaging just under seven a game. After his four years at Tulsa, he's now going to go to Memphis where he's going to coach the safeties for one year. He's going to take a one-year gap, but then Butch Davis, former University of Miami coach, former Cleveland Browns coach, football lifer, he's a football guy. He knows a football guy when he sees one. So he's going to bring in Brent Guy to be the defensive coordinator there
0: going from butch to guy is very football
1: butch is a great football name and while they're here they're gonna lead fiu to some pretty good success 2017 panthers go eight and five five and three in conference they do lose the gasparilla bowl but they come back 2018 improve that record they go nine and four six and two in conference and they win the bahamas bowl so now it's looking like we have this fiu program on the up and up we have after Wait, the Dan, 2000. There's
2: something you forgot to say. I knew that sounded familiar. They lost the Gasparilla Bowl to us.
1: Was that really to Temple? Yeah.
2: That was wow. one of our few ever bowl wins, 28 3. I remember their quarterback got hurt, so they had like some really bad backup in for the whole game, and it was just not even close. Frank Newtile, MVP of the Gasparilla Bowl.
1: I do remember that now because I remember after that game, like Temple quarterbacks had a thing for a few years where it was like, Quarterback who had a great end to last season comes in with high hopes. Quarterback sucks. Quarterback gets benched for new unheard of quarterback. Unheard of quarterback performs great to close the season. New season begins with high hopes thanks to strong end of season by quarterback. That was
0: also played at Tropicana Field. The 2017 bad boy, Luis Gasparilla Bowl, was played at the fucking TROP.
1: I, I love so many silly bowl games. The Bad Boy Mowers Bowl is definitely the favorite because you just get to drive around a lawnmower that gets up to 20 miles an hour on the field after. It looks so yes. fun. Brent Guy, you know, as I already said, Butch Davis recognized him. His fellow coaches also recognize him because after the 2017 season, he was nominated for the Broyles Award, which goes to the top assistant coach in the nation. Didn't win it that year. It went to Tony Elliott, who is currently the head coach at Virginia. He was an assistant at Clemson at the time. So they chose to give it to an up-and-comer in that instance. But if we wanted to recognize the entirety of his career, because again, by this point, Brent Guy's been a college assistant coach for over 30 years. He's trusted as like the right-hand man for Butch Davis. So after that second season, they are on a recruiting trip together. Brent Guy's driving, and he just has to pull over to the side of the road, and he just breaks down in tears. He's been getting... Back to some of his worst habits that are associated with his bipolar disorder. He's been drinking a shit ton of coffee so that he can pull those 16-hour days, which can exacerbate some of his manic tendencies that come along with the bipolar disorder. Constantly nauseous from all the coffee that he's drinking. Um, He's just overall a mess. And he he finally chokes out to, to Coach Davis I need to resign. I'm so sorry. I have personal things I need to deal with. And even at this point, it it can be easy to forget as we recount this story. In 1990, Brent Guy was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And he's been managing this condition in silence to the football world this whole time. The only people that know about this are his wife and the doctors that helped to treat him. His kids don't know. The rest of his family doesn't know. He's just living in silence. But he does know that it's finally gotten to this breaking point. Like, I need to value my life above all else. So he does step down as coach. And it was in 2020 that he finally came out publicly with his diagnosis, said, This is the reason why I left football. There's a very good feature written by ESPN um, about his battle and recounting some of the more specific instances along the way. For now, he's fully stepped away from football, does not have any intentions to return to football, but he wants to ensure that as we reach this new era in mental health awareness, he wants to be what... He wasn't private to a lot of his players along the way. He always said when he was an assistant coach, he would try to look out for the players who might be labeled as quote-unquote problem players. He would always recount that he would have to bite his tongue when some coaches might make snide remarks like, oh, so-and-so is acting like that because he didn't take his happy pills today, or so-and-so is the type to go to the top of a garage. These are specific things that he recounts hearing and having to bite his tongue in those instances, but wanting to offer himself up as a resource to those players, seeking out those kindred spirits that might be dealing with battles and silence, and even to them He's not going to specify what he has, but he's going to say, Look, I know what you're going through. I know that there can be these silent battles. I want you to talk to me. But now he wants to not just be that in private, he wants to be that as publicly as he possibly can. Since his stepping away from football, Brent Guy has been working with the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Uh, He's meeting with first responders. To help to train them on some of the more immediate warning signs of a manic episode. And also just trying to be a voice to the football community as much as possible. It's a community that he came up in. He knows full well the stigmas that are around it. And if he can't help from within the game at this point, Brent Guy wants to do nothing more than to help to break down those barriers to increase access to service, to increase quality of service for those who are dealing with mental health issues. And I thought it was just a remarkable story because when we get back to, you know, what is a football guy? It's a person that lives football, breathes football. And the way that Brent Guy is able to kind of contextualize and deal with his illness, when working with his doctors, he describes it. Let me get the exact quote. He said, doctors are just like anybody else, just like I am with the zone blitz or the zero blitz. They have certain meds that they like that they use with their patients where other ones don't. There's a real fine line everybody has to walk. You got to find the right doctor and the right meds to get you through this. That to me is just, I just love that even when it comes to this most intense personal battle, he's still viewing it through the lens of football. It's the way that he looks at the world. He's a football guy. Quite literally, he is coach guy. I hope." that while his tenure as a head coach might not have worked out too well, he had a very decorated career as an assistant coach, reflected by his nomination for the Broyles Award, by the fact that Butch Davis, you know, he'd already been out of football for a year when Butch Davis called him up to come back and be an assistant again. So I think Guy recognized Guy. I think Guy recognizes when he does need to step aside from the game, the game that he loves, and to impact it, in a bit of a different way now, uh, which is what Brent Guy is trying to do. He's just the first guy that we're going to go over today, but I do think he is very worthy of consideration for admission into our hall. So named after him.
0: <laughs> yes. Named after him. It is the Brent Guy hall of guy. I'm surprised you said like, Oh, I hope you won't hold against us that he like didn't succeed as a head coach. Are you kidding me? A like specialty positions coach, that gets one crack at it, goes nine and thirty-eight, and just goes back to his lane and doing what he knows. That's guy's shit, man.
1: No, very true, very true. It's I just I w- we couldn't have gotten one six and six in a bowl appearance. I just I would have loved that for him so much. Um, but he you know, he hates points being scored so much that his offense didn't score him either.
0: Should have gone to Iowa. Hang out with the Forensis. That would have been funny. I don't think his teams nowadays are doing enough humanitarian work. And that's really the issue. We
1: need to get back to the humanitarian Idaho famous potato bowl on a blue field. But I mean, look, I, as I said, that's, that's just the first guy. Xavier, I don't know if we're going first name guy. We're going last name guy. We going nickname guy. Tell me more. We're, fill me in. We're going first name guy, but
2: because I know everyone's interested in hearing about this thing that when it comes out, will be many days out of date. Coco Goff did win the second set after dropping the first set 3-6. Now, let's see if she can finish it off against Lee Mertens in the third set.
0: I love when we do days-old play-by-play, and I'm not saying that with any sarcasm. Like, sincerely?
2: Also, Jason Dominguez did hit a home run off Justin Verlander on his first swing in the big leagues. So take that, Astros.
0: Nope, Yankees talk is starting now. We're done.
2: (laughs) All right. Well, enough of that. It's time to talk about guys. So most people who know me know that I love random documentary television series featuring British guys. Shout out to River Monsters with one of my favorite intros. I'm Jeremy Wade. The original Top Gear with three of the most British guys in the world, in Richard Hammond, Jeremy Clarkson, and James May. Today I want to talk about a different British guy on documentary television. Guy Martin.
0: Shit, I hadn't even considered (laughs) that you would do this.
2: I know, I knew you wouldn't, and that's why I'm very excited about this. So, Guy Martin was born November 4th, 1981, in a suburb of Grimsby in Lincolnshire, England. This is on the eastern coast uh, of England. He was named Guy in tribute to Guy Gibson, who was a RAF bomber pilot during World War II. His father, Ian, was a motorbike racer who competed in several Isle of Man TT events. His main job was being a truck mechanic, but he loved to race these motorcycles on the side. So Martin and his siblings attempted pretty much every Isle of Man TT from their births while Ian raced, until Ian crashed his Yamaha FZ750 racing at Oliver's Mountain Scarborough in 1988 when Guy was seven. After recovering from his broken hip, Ian did not race again, just ended up staying as a mechanic in both trucks and classic bikes guy growing up around this fascinated by engines as a child he would take apart lawnmowers to see if he can make them go faster and school in the uk is different than school in america and in, in that school. their children
1: aren't terrified of being shot is that the main difference that their children aren't terrified of being? Well, that shot? and it
2: also finishes much earlier if you're not going to university. Mm. And the
0: food is also bad.
1: I mean, yeah, I love. I love the. Do you guys have barbecue? Probably, but I never ate. It lunch was. It was cool. It was the most disgusting chunk of rib meat that they s- just slathered in barbecue sauce.
2: It, grade F meat. It was uh, like
1: imagine imagine if a McRib was worse.
2: Sounds awful. So guy. He decided that he wanted to go to vocational school for a motor vehicle engineering course. But working on engines and not making money was not really doing it for him. So he dropped out when he got an apprenticeship with a Volvo distributor. So he's working with this Volvo distributor as a mechanic. And on the side, he picks up his dad's old hobby and starts racing motorbikes. He starts really breaking into it by offering his services as a mechanic to other people who are racing, and then, you know, making connections that way until he finally gets a chance to race on his own. He had some early local success. Uh, He won possibly my favorite race name, the Cock of the North, and also some international gold cup races at Oliver's Mount, where his dad had broken his hip and had to retire. Eventually... He gets a little more local renown and is able to compete in the Isle of Man TT himself, just like his father did. For some background, the Isle of Man TT is a two-week-long time trial, like series of races, on public roads across the northern part of the Isle of Man. It's both one of the most prestigious motorcycle racing events in the world, and also one of the most dangerous sporting events of all sports in the world. This is a massive event. Like, the Isle of Man is not that large. Thousands and thousands of fans show up and camp in pretty much every available spot. Racers zoom by, locals sitting on their porches at 200 miles an hour. People have to be warned not to drop anything in the road or get too close to it. The reason being, any small issue can lead to death. 269 racers have died in official competitions there. <laughs> nice. I, I don't know if I can say nice about that. The, num- <laughs> the, the second part of the number, devoid of context, is nice. But 17 others, including officials and spectators, have died. There was one really bad incident where a racer had died, and a bunch of racers got turned away to go back the other way, but a cop car was sent to go to the scene of the accident going the other way, and they did collide, killing many more people. And this isn't just one of those things where it's like, oh, people used to die a lot, but it's fine now. Three people died this year, and that's a light year. Six people died last year. This is an extremely dangerous race. But it is the one that motorcycle racers love. And so it is packed every single year. Guy competes in about five different classes, and he's pretty good. He never ends up winning the Isle of Man TT, The closest he got was uh, one time he was leading and then had a mechanical failure. But he finished in the top three 15 different times. And most importantly, he didn't die doing this. He did crash a lot. Once in 2010, he had to be airlifted to the hospital by helicopter. An incident that was captured on film for a documentary, TT3D, Closer to the Edge. You don't see Guy. You see his motorbike come around a turn burst into a gigantic ball of flames, and continue going forward while Guy is nowhere to be seen. He like said, this is very
1: dangerous. It seems like if we were to modernize Wide World of Sports, that could have been a good replacement for our boy. Possibly. Might be
2: too dangerous for ABC to put that in there, but you never know. But yeah, this racing, despite the danger, is a trade-off Guy is willing to make. Actually, not even despite the danger, kind of because of it. You know, he, he said, quote, I like being control my own destiny really. You can go out racing on your bike, make one little mistake, and that's it, you're dead. I love all of that, being so near yet so far. Kind of, you know, like thrill seeking. The speed is worth it because you know when you're on the bike, you have to be totally in the zone because one mistake and that's it. I would love to focus on the motorcycle racing aspect of Guy's life. And I'm sure if you ask Guy, he would say the same. That, or he'd say something like, I'm just a simple mechanic who likes to race, but he never did it full-time, quote, believing he would get sick of the sight of bikes, and he maintained his amateur status, really only racing at some local things and then the Isle of Man. So there isn't a ton of like, recorded info about motorcycle road racing outside of that, but there is a ton left to say about Guy. In the lead-up to the 2009 Isle of Man TT, there were some TV producers who were shooting footage pre-race. So they're interviewing a bunch of racers, they interview Guy, and they're mesmerized by their interview. They go back to London and show some clips to a BBC executive. It was just one of those standard features you do about the runners and riders, said James Woodroffe, whose film for ITV4 was intended for fans of the race. But rather than talk about machines and what he liked about the course, like most of them, Guy started talking about the molecular structure of tea. So this clip is on YouTube. He takes these people on a tour of his shed near Grimsby and has a mug of tea, which is apparently one of nearly, like, 20 he drinks a day. And Guy says, quote, nine times out of ten, people put the milk in last. But if you put the milk in first, the overall result is an emulsion, which is a far better result than a mixture. It's all about the molecular reaction between the hot water and the milk. I'm a bit sad. I take things like that into account. He says this in like the most rural British drawl. He's got big, fluffy hair with full-on mutton-chop sideburns. And everyone's like, wait, this guy's phenomenal. We need more of this guy.
1: There's a clip I've seen going viral recently of this British guy getting interviewed by BBC, and there's a pigeon that's just chosen to live on his head. That guy is the second most British guy I've ever heard of. Guy Martin... Discussing the molecular structure of tea is the most British thing that I can possibly conceive of.
0: And for the record, he's fully correct because not only does it create a full emulsion, it does also make it easier for sugar if you are adding it to either tea or coffee to dissolve. Also weird that we now have two guys who have attested to regularly drinking 20 cups of a caffeinated beverage a day.
2: Well, he's British, so I think it's actually required.
0: Yeah, it's not bipolar disorder. It's British, which is a completely different. (laughs) It, It could also be autism
2: I will say that he does have autism. <laughs> so,
1: just just it, absolutely obsessed with tea.
2: Well, so he, he got diagnosed with autism later in life. He said, it hasn't changed anything. It just confirms why I do certain things in a certain way. And I think doing certain things in a certain way while talking about how you make your tea that you drink 20 times a day. Caitlin, who is trained to spot these things in children, When I talked about how much Guy loves engines, she's like, yeah, I would have pointed that out when he was a kid. (laughs) So take that as you will. The BBC contacts Guy, and they're able to convince him to shoot a six-episode series called The Boat That Guy Built. The IMDb description for this series is simply labeled A guy called Guy builds a boat.
1: What more do you need?
2: As you may have gathered... It's literally about Guy renovating an an old narrow boat, which was like a a type of UK canal boat, and the boat was named Reckless. So it's essentially a 50s boat with an engine from 1931, cannot go anywhere, and Guy spends about two and a half hours of television time renovating this boat so he can go up and down the canals again. This series is extremely well-received, and people wanted to see more of Guy. So a couple years later... Channel 4 airs the first season of Speed with Guy Martin, which was a four-episode program about Guy's attempt to create four speed-based challenges that enable him to explore the boundaries of physics and learn about the science of speed. In the first episode, which was titled Britain's Fastest Cyclist, Guy breaks the British record for speed on a bicycle. James, can you take a guess at how fast Guy goes on a bicycle?
0: You're saying it's the fastest any Brit has ever gone? Yes. Give me 45 miles an hour.
2: It's 112.94 miles an hour, James. Fucking shit, bro! (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of prep that goes into it. There is a racing truck in front of him that he essentially uses as a slipstream to cut through the wind. They tow him for 30 seconds so he can get up to speed. But then it's up to him to maintain and go even faster. And he's talking, like, it's just a delight to watch. It's so fun. He's just, like, mic'd up saying, like, I feel like my muscles are shredding themselves apart. But then he breaks the record, and he's just so happy, and everyone's congratulating him. It's just so wholesome. But, yeah, 112.94 miles per hour.
0: That has to have been the most smoothly paved road I've ever seen in my entire life. James,
2: it wasn't a road. It was a beach. Yeah, you're even more confused, aren't you?
0: Yes, I am.
1: In the event of a crash, that does seem like it might be a better surface. I'm not even going to say best. There's no good surface to crash on at 112 miles an hour.
0: I just can't imagine your tires having enough grip to go that fast on a beach.
2: You know what? It, It worked for Guy.
0: Yeah, if it's good enough for Guy.
2: So over three seasons of this show, Guy attempted to break other records such as the world's fastest toboggan the furthest distance possible on a bike with 24 hours of non-stop cycling, the world speed record for hovercrafts, and the motorcycle land speed record. His current speed records, because he still has some of these, include the fastest tractor in the world at 135.191 miles per hour, fastest speed in a soapbox car, 85.61 miles per hour, and the highest speed on a wall of death, 78.15 miles per hour, among others. James, the wall of death looks kind of like the ball of hell from the Simpsons movie, except Mm -hmm. without a top on it. And he just has to ride his motorcycle perpendicular to the ground around this wall. Absolutely phenomenal. While filming his television specials and still motorcycle racing, and also still working full-time as a mechanic, Guy also got into mountain bike racing. In June 2011, after two full years of training, he raced in the Salz Kammergut Trophy in Austria, which was going down an entire Austrian mountain. And with a time of 14 hours and 40 minutes, he was the first British non-professional rider to finish. This is a thing that professionals spend a lot of time doing, and just this amateur guy named Guy, who felt like picking up mountain biking, just trained for this and did it while maintaining multiple other things going on in his life. He finished second in the male solo rider category at the Strathpuffer 24-hour mountain bike race in Scotland in both 2014 and 2015. And in 2016, he competed in the Tour Divide mountain bike race, which runs from Banff, Canada, to Antelope Wells, New Mexico, going through the Rocky Mountains. It took him 18 days, 6 hours, and 23 minutes, with an average of 150 miles covered per day through mountains.
0: No, no, thank you. Not for me personally. I mean, yes, no, it's incredible, but not for me personally.
2: July of 2017, Guy had officially retired from motorcycle racing. Yeah, he said, racing's been good to me, but I'm bored of it. You spend the early part of the year preparing for the season, testing, racing, talking about it, and then doing it all over again. It's like Groundhog Day. It's time to stop. So now that he's done with that, he got approached to be the new host of the New Top Gear with Matt LeBlanc. But he turned that down, because he wanted to continue doing his own thing. He also previously turned down, like, appearing on Top Gear as a guest. Said, it's not really my thing. It's seen as the typical celebrity thing to do, and I'm not a celebrity in in any way. Currently, he continues to do documentary TV specials. They alternate between, like, record attempts, British history slash engineering, and travel logs. So in some of his most recent miniseries, he attempted to set a new world record for the fastest road-legal electric car, uh, investigated how Britain's power is made, including the shift to sustainable energy, and went to Colombia to, quote, see firsthand the effect cocaine is having on the country.
1: When we say firsthand, what do we mean?
2: You know what? You'll have to watch our guy in Colombia. I do have clips up right now of guy getting kidnapped and waterboarded in Colombia and guy getting shot in Colombia. And it led to a great headline in The Guardian that read, Guy Martin makes cocaine, gets kidnapped, and meets Pablo Escobar's nephew in Colombia. Guy, despite doing this TV stuff, doesn't see TV work as a job, and he would not miss it if it, he were stopped. You know, he used it as a means to do things that he otherwise could not, gaining information and experiences Quote, the only reason I do TV is because they keep coming up with decent ideas. And he continues to work as a mechanic as his actual day job. He, he has pushed back or canceled TV shoots. Like if his boss says they have like a big project needs to be done. He's, he's just a truck mechanic.
0: I also love that in all this time, he's still working for another mechanic. I would thought that like, look, you've got some BBC money. Not say crazy BBC money, but like enough BBC money to... Presumably open up your own mechanic shop. You see, you
2: would think that too, but no, he has a boss. He works for a different company. He just likes doing what he does, and he's worked for the same company for a long time. He was asked, like, why do you still do this? Like, surely you have enough TV money. And he said, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I love it. I was like the dog to wag the tail. All right, you in decent money on TV, but I earn decent money on me trucks. The day the TV boys get sick of me, and that day will come, of course it will, you're kidding yourself if you think otherwise, what would I do then? If I was a TV presenter, I would have to get into the luxury trap, earning mega money. And the next thing you know, they've sacked you. The money stops, and you've got a massive mortgage, and you think, shit, shit. And then you have a massive breakdown. I've never got above my station. Nice house, nice shed. I drive a transit van in a Volvo estate. I've never lived like a rock star, no mansion, no cocaine habit to fuel. And if everything stopped tomorrow, I could quite happily live on my truck wage.
0: Now, to be clear, he said no cocaine habit.
2: (laughs) That's true. This was also before our guy in Columbia, so who knows? But um, I'm just fascinated by this guy named Guy, who seems like the most British person ever. Full-time mechanic who loved to race motorcycles on the side, then loved to race mountain bikes and endurance races on the side because he's just so happy-go-lucky he ended up on tv despite him not caring about tv just so he can have cool experiences going to india and china and Colombia and all these things and like any true brit with some money he also currently co-owns a pub in his hometown that he renovated with his sister that's called the Marrowbone bone and cleaver Apparently, it's a gathering place for people who love bikes and cycling of all sorts, and it's helped revitalize this small town in the suburbs of Grimsby. You know, I just, I really love Guy's story. I've been watching a lot of his his stuff on YouTube. He's just so relentlessly positive. I, I get why those producers were, we need to get this guy named Guy on TV. I totally understand why he feels like it's more of just a hobby for him because you can really see that coming through. And I I just love it. I think it's a phenomenal story. And also, he did release a book that has possibly my my favorite title ever called Guy Martin, When You Dead, You Dead, which just covered his previous year doing the 24-hour solo World Mountain Bike Championship and the Isle of Man TT in diary format, which seems like the most Guy book ever. And... I, I just love it. Regardless of whether or not you vote for him
1: today, I, just, I want you to see these videos so you love him as much as I do. When You Dead, You Dead is a great book title, but I was most tickled on his Wikipedia page when I read the following entry, exactly from his Wikipedia page. Martin has written three books about his life, releasing his autobiography, Guy Martin, My Autobiography, on May 8th, 2014. You know exactly what you're getting with this guy.
0: Between that, between Guy and his bow, like he, above all, believes in truth and advertising. And I have a lot of respect for that. Guy
2: is a straight shooter. You don't have to worry about any sort of misdirection or exaggeration. If he tells you he's going to do it, he's going to do it. A guy you can trust. Who cares about the molecular structure of tea. Rightfully so. But enough about my guy named Guy. We have one more guy named guy, or Guy, or whatever it is, James,
0: please. First, I do need to tell you about a movie. It came out on November 26th, 1942. It stars Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. If you have not already guessed, this is the film Casablanca, which is named for the Moroccan city in which it takes place. It tells of a doomed romance with the backdrop of World War II between those two actors, characters, and thankfully, about a decade or so after World War II, romance is able to a little bit more easily flourish here in Casablanca. And so it is that in the late 50s and early 60s, a Frenchman named Paul meets the Moroccan-born Genevieve, and the two get married in 1964. And then as the calendar turns to 1965, the couple is still in Casablanca, and on January 4th, they welcome their first child. It's a boy. So they decide to name him after Genevieve's brother. And thus begins the life of my guy today Guy Forget. Guy Forget is, of course, the correct pronunciation of this individual. I do want to point out that if you're a stupid American, you would read this as Guy Forget. While he is born here, family knows that if they don't leave, they'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but someday and for the rest of their lives. And so at a young age, Guy and the family Forget move back to Paul's hometown of Toulouse. This is in the south of France. Well-off upbringing for Guy here. His dad, Paul, had been a pretty successful tennis player, Uh, as far as I can tell, the reason that he was in Morocco in the first place, in international championships, which he did make the finals of in 56 and 57, and Guy also picks up this sport pretty early. He develops this, like, strong left-handed serve and volley style. It is a little bit strange in France. Doesn't typically play all that well on clay. But that does not stop him from winning the Roland Garros, or the French Open, junior title in 1982. And with this moment kind of rounding out his junior circuit, he is ready to turn pro later that year. So his first year on the tour, it's about what you'd expect from a 17-year-old. He competes in the Australian and French Open, and he does make it to the third round of both of those. And he also dips his toes into doubles a little bit. By the end of the year, he is 70th worldwide in singles and 717th in doubles next year 83 we're still building we're still growing we're a young player on the circuit we make it to wimbledon and the u.s open this time to make sure we have checked off all four grand slams for appearances does have losses in first rounds of all three of those grand slams that he appears in this year he is down to 188 in singles next couple of years between 84 and 85 he participates in all eight grants that are available in those two years he never gets past the fourth round but is starting to finally get a couple wins, his big one in singles. We wanna dwell on this for just a moment because it is in his ancestral homeland of Toulouse. 40 years ago, from 1986, so back in 1946, his grandpa, Pierre Forget had won this title here in Toulouse. And then 20 years after that, his father, Paul Forget had won. And it is now another 20 years later, and Guy Forget does win his first top-level pro title here in 86 in Toulouse, In fact, Grandpa Pierre is on hand to present the trophy to him to continue this beautiful cyclical family thing. We love multi
2: generational forges.
0: We absolutely do. We don't want to forge any of them, and that is all well and good for singles. But something that has become very clear as these last couple years have gone is that singles is probably not the main place for Guy to focus on. What he's going to keep focusing on now is those doubles. He started seven hundred and seventeenth, but as he starts to participate in more of these in the mid eighties with some of his like big longtime partners that we're going to get to know. There's Frenchman Loic Corteau. Uh, we also have another Frenchman, Henri Lecomte and a Swissman, Jacob Placic. Placic. That is a very difficult last name. My apologies. Three of his main four partners that we're going to have. Guy has reached all the way up to a 23rd ranking in 1986 and that is when it is time for him to really, like, take off as a doubles player. Gets six titles that season with a few different partners. And his biggest win is at Indian Wells. Indian Wells takes place in California. It's the biggest West Coast American tennis competition. It is kind of the unofficial fifth Grand Slam. And at this time, he is there with Peter Fleming, who is taking a break from always playing with, like, Andre Agassi and Sampras, to come here and play Indian Wells doubles with Guy Forget. His opponent there, who they do defeat, is though going to be the fourth and perhaps most important of his main partners. This is Yannick Noah. Are the two of you familiar with Franco Cameroonian Yannick Noah? That's Joe Kim's dad, isn't it? That is exactly Joe Kim Noah's dad. Yes. Yeah. Yannick Noah uh, is out there playing with uh, him. He's been playing by 1986 with Henri Leconte a lot. The two of them, like, really came up, and then Guy's just a tiny bit behind him, but they are the three main French tennis stars. And after this loss to Guy, Yannick Noah, there's something he likes seeing on the other side of that court because his next 11 wins or runner-up finishes in doubles are all going to be with Guy Forger, They get a couple smaller wins in Monte Carlo, Rome, Basel, And they make a really deep run at the end of the season's ATP finals. Just coming off at this point, seven straight finals that have been won by the Fleming-McEnroe combination. But uh, unfortunately, a former teammate of Guise, Anders Jared from Sweden, does defeat them this time with a uh, fellow Swede. So they topple our French boys, but it is an excellent double season. They had gotten at one point as high as third ranked in the world, finish in eighth. He's also not a slouch in singles. He's 25th ranked at this point, but we are mostly here for the doubles. And so it is in 1987. Guy Forget and Yannick Noah, they return to Indian Wells, that fifth Grand Slam. They play a 19-year-old Boris Becker that year. He had just become the youngest ever Wimbledon winner two years ago. But the German Wunderkind is sent back to kindergarten by the two Frenchmen when they win in straight sets. They have a couple wins on clay at Forest Hills and Rome. And so coming into the French Open, this incredibly French pair all the confidence in the world. They have an incredible run we're in. They reach the finals and do once again lose to Andres Jared there in the top. He rips their hearts out. That's the most French thing though. Like the most French thing is Mm -hmm. to win all the little French
2: things to prepare you for the big French thing and then lose in the final of the big French thing.
0: Yeah. (laughs) This is kind of the end of the playing run of Yannick and Guy because Yannick has some other ventures like music recording that he needs to go focus on. But Guy... Is still all about the tennis. He forges ahead. And as we reach Indian Wells in 1990, that thing where Yannick Noah had looked across the court and really liked the opponent he was facing, same thing seems to have happened with Boris Becker because Boris Becker decides he wants to play with Guy Forget now at Indian Wells and works a whole lot better for him than playing against Guy Forget at Indian Wells because the two of them do win. He's coming along. Loic Cortot, the first of those four partners, he's kind of wound down. Yannick is winding down now, but we got a lot of time still with Henri. And Jakob Hlasek. as soon as the 1990s hit, Guy starts really feeling himself. He gets his first major day singles title in Bordeaux, and he gets six major doubles titles that year, including another Indian Wells with Becker. The other five wins are all with Jakob Hlasek. But there's one competition that, unfortunately, Jakob Hlasek simply cannot compete in with Guy Fourget. Back in the late 1800s, Americans... We're starting to get good at tennis. And at the same time, they're starting to, America, normalize diplomatic relations with Great Britain, which had previously been like our greatest enemies. But we're getting kind of chummy now. And so this guy, Dwight Davis, looks at the sporting scene. He decides, you know, a good diplomatic thing would be to have an international tennis competition. International initially means between the United States and Great Britain only. And in 1900, they have the very first edition of what will become known as the Davis Cup. By 1905, this has already now become an international affair. And nowadays, it is the biggest international tennis competition that is held. France has a really good run early on in this tournament. They are runners-up in 25 and 26. They win from 1927 through 1932, all consecutive, and then do once again finish runner-up in 1933. And then they do not make another final even until 1982. They have still been winless for nearly 60 years when we reach 1991, and this is the team that we are concerned with. U.S. is favored this year. They are largely led by Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi. Those are their two stars. France is no slouch. They also make it to the finals in a matchup against America. And the thing about the U.S. versus the French teams, the U.S. Sampras and Agassi for singles, but they have a doubles pair of Ken Flack and Roberto Seguso, who have, like, nothing to do with the singles. They're not playing that at all. They're just the doubles team. France is captained by Yannick Noah, who is not playing, but he has now become the captain of the Davis team. And it's basically just Guy Forget and Henri Leconte by the time they get to the finals. They've had some others play a couple sets as they get towards here, but the way it's going to break down, there are five rounds, if necessary, that they play. First two singles, the doubles as the third, and then two more singles. In the very first set of the finals, Guy takes it for Magazine and then drops the next three. The US goes up 1 0. Henri Leconte. Pete Sampras in the next one. Three straight. Ties it up. 1-1. And the two of them absolutely crush Flak and Seguso. And that sets up Guy with a chance of redemption. Because for the fourth round, he is facing that other loser, Pete Sampras. And eventually in that final fourth set, size of one, he wins 6-4. Giving France their first Davis Cup win in almost six decades. Along with his friend Henri Leconte under the captaincy of their third musketeer, Yannick Noah. And this stokes... Not only a patriotic fire in Forget, but it also seems to just light a fire under his ass in general, because the next year he makes the men's singles and doubles finals, both at Indian Wells. He loses both of them, but still six single titles that year. His first ever two ATP Masters events, he wins them in two incredibly similar cities, Paris and Cincinnati. And both of them <laughs> come over Pete Sampras. He gets as high up as 4 that year in singles, finishes the year at 7, by far his highest singles rating ever, and he wins the ATP Finals as a doubles, finally, this time with Jakob Plašek. Now that the international swords have gone away for a moment, the two can combine the Franco-Swiss alliance. He will never again quite reach these heights, but he does have a couple more ATP highlights. He and Lacan together, get one Indian Wells doubles, it is his fifth overall. And uh, he wins the hometown Toulouse a third time in 1992. Reunites with Boris Becker for another doubles win, not at Indian Wells, but just having some fun elsewhere. And in '96, his final singles title comes against Cedric Pierlin in Marseille. But those two, they're rivals here in his final ATP win. They're not going to be rivals for a moment as we go back to the Davis Cup. It's 1996 for the Davis Cup. Captain Yannick Noah had to retire for a little bit because he had to tour to support his music recording business i'm not joking at all he has like several albums at this point and he's been touring in support of that for a little bit but it's time for him to come back as the davis cup captain for his second non-consecutive term and as he's building the team there's a lot of new blood but for the doubles team there's one guy that he cannot forge and so versus sweden as they get to the finals it's tied 1-1 going into the doubles match this is the only one that Guy is going to be able to participate. They have now gone to a, a strategy similar to the one the Americans had in 1991, but with Guillaume oil, they just fucking dominate Winning in four sets, six, three, one, six, six, three, six, three. France drops round four in the singles, but they do win that decisive fifth singles match over Sweden. For the record, that one has like two different tiebreakers in sets one and three. The final match, they was 10 to eight. It is incredibly close the whole way, but in the end, once again, Guy Forget is a part of one of the first Davis Cup winning French teams in almost 60 years. It's only been five years this time, but the two together still kind of feels like getting over a drought. You know, it's like the 2007 Red Sox. This is really the last great moment of his playing career. He will retire about seven months later in June of 97. His singles career finishes 378 and 290 with 11 titles. Doubles 387, 182 with 28 titles. After a little bit of time, he decides that while he's done playing, he does have some more mire to prove. And so he begins his run as a captain of French national teams. And yes, I did say teams plural there. I can guess one, but you're going to have to tell me the other one. Yeah, I mean, you can guess the one is Davis, but there is also a female equivalent by this point. I mean, there's been a female equivalent in his life this entire time, but there's one that we can now reach which is nowadays called the Billie Jean King Cup. It is the Fed Cup, though, that we are concerned with here in the 90s and 2000s. And a little bit of background on this one. It had started in 1963. France is one of four countries to have participated in every single one. So shouts to the French for that. He comes in after, surprisingly, Yannick Noah had been the captain of them prior to this. Yannick Noah had been doing very well with both. It was a little controversial that he came out. It wasn't like pitting Gee against him, but he had been well-liked and it was going to be maybe a little bit tough for Gee to step into these shoes. Uh, absolutely. No, it is not. He's going to come in and they're immediately going to make three appearances in four years in the Davis Cup finals. Runners up in 1999 and 2002. They win in 2001 overall. They had been winning when he comes in and they keep winning on the Davis Cup side. That's no problem for Guy Fourgette. They do, admittedly, take a little bit of a step back at first in the Fed Cup. They'd won in 97 under Yannick, and then they're just not really contenders until we get it to 2003, and they do reach the finals, going up against 17 times champions, the American team. The odds are daunting, but they have a coach who knows about how to play as a French underdog to an American team. And as Diaz you so thoroughly love to say, It really comes down to the fact that Guy, he makes the right speeches. He pushes the right buttons and single-handedly this coach without any input from the star female players whatsoever is just able to take this French underdog all the way to the second ever fed cup win for the French women's national team, who was on that team. All right. So I can tell you that the French women that participated in the final round, I'm not the biggest tennis fan. I didn't know most of them. We have Amelie Morelmo. We have Mary Pierce. We have Emily Lloyd, And we have Stephanie cohen Aloro playing with Emily Lloyd. So those were the four that participated in the finals against Stevenson, Megan Shaughnessy, Lisa Raymond, and Martina Navratilova. I've heard of those four on the American team. I have not heard of those four on the French team. Yeah, so that's that's
2: actually a pretty... I wasn't sure who the U.S. would have had it's definitely not their best team, but it is a solid team that probably should have won. So that is a pretty good upset.
0: It's a big accomplishment by the coach slash captain.
1: <laughs> it's incredible coaching from G4J. And if I can amend a BoJack quote a little bit, and it's like that was the problem with French women's tennis. There just weren't enough men doing it. And then you get G4J in there and it fixes everything right up.
0: Yes. I mean, it's incredible and it gets them going on a good start. They are. Going to make the finals two years after this. They will lose to Russia both times. And actually, I should clarify that Guy leaves between those two appearances. He gives up his spot as the captain to Georges Gauvin, who had served as the captain in between Yannick Noah's first two terms as the French Davis Cup captain. And has now come over to be the Fed Cup captain. But Guy Forget, who was both the Davis and Fed, is still just going to be the... Da- it's very yankees billy martin lou the yogi berra in the mix all of that and very, very intermingled we'll do say
2: the, do the french not have enough people in tennis at this point i thought france like they have a lot of tennis players They're why just is it the same
0: favorites. people for so long because they love these ones the most specifically like people have said as i've watched videos about this like these three Guy Forget, Henri Leconte, and Yannick Noah are like the three faces that people think of for men's French tennis right now. Uh, I did not know that they cast such a large shadow, but they really do. Like he's at the Davis Cup host for another 14 years. He was the longest ever tenured Davis Cup captain. Do oh you want to guess? I'm looking right now. Do you want to guess, Diaz, who took the job over from Guy Forget as Davis Cup captain? Who was it? It was Yannick Noah, who is also once again serving as the Fed Cup captain for France now. Unreal. Fucking in his 60s. It's, they are like the definition of modern men's French tennis. They're a golden generation. And much like Tony Parker, it's very clear which of them is the third. It is very much Guy Forge. He's the one who has no Grand Slam wins. He's always kind of the second of the pair, you know, even when he's not with his Frenchman, even with Boris Becker. And it's those little things about him that I love. I love that he's got this weird six degrees of guy connection to Joe Kim Noah. I love that he has the highest win percentage of all time of Fed Cup captains, despite the team taking a little step back when he came back there. Longest tenured Davis captain. All of this tennis, again, was done with a playing style that should just be fundamentally incompatible with the French playing surface of clay. And so it's a wild career. And there are a couple of things, you know, that go on in his life outside of that. I should mention that he has his wife, Isabelle, and they do have their sons, Matthew and Thibault. Thibault. Is a tennis player. Unfortunately, was born in '95. Was not an old enough tennis player in 2006 to win 20 years after his dad won, and 20 years after his dad's dad won, and 20 years after his dad's dad dad. It's dads all the way down. But he is playing tennis for USC. So once again, shouts to the former Pac-12.
2: I mean, we have to blame Gee for that for not you know, <laughs> you know, getting that done early enough to give it to give his son a shot. He waited too long.
0: Ma- Matthew is the older son. Maybe he was hoping that he would go into tennis. Either way, it's She's not Timble's
2: fault. It's not Timble's fault.
0: fault. Guy Fourget did run the French Open for a little bit. He did step down after he was implicated. with Some of his financials being exposed in, not the Panama Papers, not the Paradise Papers, but the third different leak of people's weird Caribbean papers that we had, the Pandora Papers. He was figured in that. Uh, he blamed it all on his IMG management. Give him a win IMG? Yeah, maybe. Totally could buy it. Finally, he is immortalized in a sort of song. And I say sort of song because this is not a dig against the band, but I do hesitate to call any of Fish's music song. It's more every once in a while they say words over the notes that they've just been playing on end for like two hours at a time. That being said, they do have a lyric. Regarding our good friend Guy Forget, that actually it, it's very convenient. It was played for the very first time in many years, and the very first time outside of the mountain time zone. And if you weren't able to catch that in the hippie drawl, it is I never met a man I could not remember, except for Guy Forget. Fish. They might be able to forget him. But I think it is our duty to make sure that we hear at this hall. Remember that, Guy. Well,
1: your closing immediately made a couple synapses connect in my brain. Because Fish has another song that I've never listened to, but I've read about. The about, appropriate
0: way for the record to approach Fish songs. Yes, please continue.
1: Exactly. I've heard about and read the lyrics for, but never listened to. Where there was a player for Memphis, University of Memphis. In the CUSA Championship got fouled as time expired down to shooting the three. And he swished the first and the last two rimmed out. And they lost by one. And Fish wrote a whole song about that guy.
0: Squeezing out the breath that I don't have it quiet now, they only want two more. And you step to the line.
1: That guy is Darius Washington Jr. That was his freshman year that he missed those free throws. And it does have a happy ending, James, because while his 15-year career took him all across Europe and South America, we would be remiss to not note he is a San Antonio Spurs legend, having played 18 games and averaged 2.9 points per game in the 2007-08 season.
0: Goddamn right he is. I thought you were about to say the 07 season. I was like, I mean, he's probably got a ring.
1: Unfortunately, not. He he was part of the the unsuccessful defense, but not to distract from G four J. But when you mention obscure athlete who had fish song written about him, I'm going to connect that to the other one of those that I have in my brain. (laughs) And uh, I would I would encourage any listener. I mean, look, I mean, it's heartbreaking. It's like my worst nightmare to to watch him miss
0: those free throws, Diaz. If we had a nickel for every unfortunate sports guy that fish had written a song about. But speaking of defenses, more than that, honestly, that's true. I don't know that much about fish. In case I haven't made that clear, what I do know is that it is time for at least one of these defenses to be successful rather than unsuccessful. What are we thinking now? All
2: right, I'm not going to beat around the bush on this. I think you guys can tell how much I liked Guy Martin from talking about him. I I really like I, I like Guy Forget. I liked Brent Guy, even if it made me think about Brent Pry the whole time. And I had to just keep untangling the two in my head. Like, they're both defensive coordinators, but they are different guys, even if it rhymes. But I, I just really like Guy Martin. Everything about his career fascinates me. From the motorcycle racing, to the picking up extreme mountain biking, to the speed records, the just being a mechanic at someone else's company for his entire career and never giving that up. And then just doing TV when he thinks the idea is cool and he wants to have a new experience. Uh, I, I really like Guy Martin.
0: I don't want to brush past Brent Guy too quickly. There's a couple things that I want to say on his part. Picture of Brent Guy, he is exactly what you would picture from a football coach that has been on the defensive side of the ball his entire life. He's born bald. There's no way that man has ever had any hair on his head whatsoever. He's lived his entire life completely bald, just as round as he is now.
1: He looks like what Steve Adazio wants to look like.
0: Spot on. But Diaz, the three-peat as of yet remains undone. And I do feel like much as it might've influenced Nikola Jokic's MVP award this last year, there's a higher standard you have to meet for that third one. So I did have that in mind as my approach, Brent.
1: It it is a higher bar. It is a higher bar, James. And And I do concede that, which is why if both of you were wowed, By the Brent guy story, and I think it's a good story. It's it's a a really good story. story. And I again, we love what he's doing with his second act, trying to make it easier for those who deal with mental illness now within the sporting community, make it better for them than it was for him, so that they don't feel the need to live in secrecy like he did. That's all great. We love all that. But again, it is that higher bar to to get the And I fully respect that, which is. You know, that's why I'm split between Guy Martin and G4J because I love so much about Guy Martin. It's a great story. But just the the name is really, really tough for me to look past in a positive sense. Like, it is Guy Forget, and we are Remember That Guy.
0: I think it comes down to Maybe the thing that we need to ask, and I mean, when better to ask it at this, this milestone part, if we're just talking about the guyest dudes that we can talk about, obviously, Guy Martin wins this. It's not even close to a competition. But is Guy Martin enough of a sportsman? Is there enough of a sporting career here to hang that on? Yes, of course, we've talked about someone like Carl Weathers, but of course, the Purpose of that was to discuss people with their careers outside of the sport. I'm not saying yes or no either way. I'm just asking questions, as we often do here. See,
2: I think so because we've talked about a ton of guys who have had like either short careers or the sport that they're in is not a sport where they're competing like full time. They've probably spent a lot of time training for these things, but Guy was consistently competing for almost two decades in both motorcycle racing and then for almost a decade in cycling and mountain biking. Like There, there are people that we have talked about that have done way less in like actual sporting terms than Guy. It's more of the fact that Guy has had such a successful... He has so many angles that it almost diminishes the motorcycle and cycling, even if those are extremely substantial it's just the way I presented because I wanted to talk a lot about all the other facets of Guy. I don't, I don't want to diminish the sporting accomplishments that he has because I know Diaz looked at his Wikipedia page earlier. There's a ton on there. I just cut a bunch out because I didn't want to be going on for hours and hours. I, like, if you want to talk about Guy Forget because you like the name, I get it. I get it it's a great name. Like, that's fine, but I don't think we can hold like actually, actual sporting competitions against Guy Martin.
0: I think that's a perfectly fair response.
1: Like, it seems like we're kind of split. I want to keep this open, but in a previous episode where it was like very split down the middle, I did turn to chat GPT. I wanted to turn <laughs> the, the chat GPT here just to see what it comes up with.
0: We're, we're playing all the old hits again.
1: I asked simply, who is a better guy, Guy Martin or Guy Forget?" It gave a brief summary of both. And then it said, comparing the two quote unquote guys depends on your preference and interests. If you're into motorsports and mechanical engineering, you might lean towards Guy Martin. On the other hand, if you're a tennis enthusiast, you might appreciate Guy gs accomplishments in the world of tennis. It's important to note that they excel in different domains and have different types of accomplishments. I tried to nail it down. I said, if you had to pick one, which would you pick? It said, as an AI language model, I don't have personal opinions, feelings, or preferences, so I can't make some technical choices. (laughs) I tried one more time to nail it down. I said, if you were capable of making subjective choices, which choice would you make in this instance? And it said, I understand your question, but as an AI developed by OpenAI, I don't possess personal opinions. My responses are based on factual information. Therefore, I don't have the capacity to express personal preference. So ChatGPT, much like it is to society, is doing nothing to help me. (laughs) So I am stuck with, again, both of your cases to help to settle this.
0: I like that guy Martin stays amateur forever, but also does it still count as amateur? If you're like getting paid by television to do it. I know well, like was, literally but, it does, but well, he, was
2: ne- he was never paid by television for m- motorcycle racing. Or, but for the like, records? Like, yeah, but the records were all a bunch of different things. Like some of his records include gravity racers down a mountain or fastest toboggan or hovercrafts. They, they were totally separate from his actual motorcycle racing. He was racing against people who were actual professionals backed by teams like BMW and Honda, who were being paid and equipped by car and motorcycle producers with a lot of money. So he's competing against people who are professional racers, but he stayed amateur and did not take money from that because, again... His day job was being a mechanic, and he didn't want to give that part up while competing. So he's racing against professionals. He's not taking money from the BBC or whatever for, for racing parts. That's a totally separate sure. thing. Sure. But does he have a fish song? He, he might. Doesn't. He might.
0: I didn't look it up.
2: He might, but right now I'm going to lean towards no. And honestly, I think that might be a positive based off of yeah, everything fair. I know about fish. Yeah. Because the things I know about fish are they're not positive. Fish themselves may be fine, but I have heard things about fish concerts and the people who enjoy fish. So I don't think it's a bad thing that Guy Martin does not have a fish song named after him.
0: Well, I think the important question that has come up is does Diaz think it is important that Guy Martin doesn't have a fish song named after him?
1: Here's what it comes down to for me. Ultimately I'm not considering, as pros or cons, the amount of fish songs made about an individual. I've I've completely removed that from my analysis. And here's what it comes down to. I think if we were to say, who is the bigger every man, who is the bigger every guy? I do think the answer is Guy Martin. However. I was waiting for the however. However.
2: It's like you're unfortunate. It's, it's, yeah, it's, all, it, it all, it's
1: always the however. It's fine. In my best Stephen A. Smith voice. However, if we are to consider the contributions within the sporting world that deserve to be remembered, I believe it is not just his undertakings while playing with Joe Kim Noah's dad to get to those two French Opens a decade apart. And lose both is particularly heartbreaking. And it could have been the end to the tennis career of a lesser guy. But we're not dealing with a guy. We're dealing with a Gi. And this Gi would go on to lead his country to glory in the Davis Cup. Big time guys step up in big time moments. And when it came down to gee to be a, let's be real, superior opponent in Pete Sampras. He didn't care what the world ranking said. He didn't care what the ability said. He did what he had to do. He won. He empowered future generations of the French to win, both male and female. And while there's some shady financial stuff going on there, towards the end a little bit, it is not enough for us to forget about this guy, which is why we must remember Guy Forget and welcome him into our illustrious Hall of Guy.
2: Bienvenue. I feel like Diaz after Mitch Canham didn't get in. I'll remember this.
0: I was just going to say, I felt like this was, did a really good job of our first attempt at like long-form narrative because it's been this season-long arc of coaches taking credit for everything their players do. And I finally cashed in on it, baby!
1: They're, they're all just pieces on a board. It's all about how you move them around. That's that's what my problem. I haven't like, brought any coaches this year. Yeah. If, if, if Guy Martin had coached somebody up on how to ride a tractor over 100 miles an hour, it might have swung it.
0: Yeah, it's not, that he
2: did it, it's not that he did it himself and broke multiple land speed records. And- if Guy <laughs> Martin
0: could have trained someone to break the lawn mowing skirt at the 2017 Bad Boy Mowers Gasparilla Bowl played between Temple and FIU at the fucking trop, then it would have been a walk. I can't believe that happened at Tropicana Field. My God.
1: It's so funny. It's a house of horrors. Do, they, do you think they have a rule for, like, if the punt hits the um, the dunk? Yeah, it's a
0: touchback if it gets one of the catwalks.
1: Right, exactly. Two points re-kick. Uh,
2: Xavier,
0: can we get an update on Coco Golf?
2: Yeah, she won 10 games in a row to bagel out Elisa Mertens and win the third set 6-0. So Coco is going to the round of 16. She is on a collision course for Iga Swiatek in the quarterfinals, which would be a brutal one. You know, we'll see if that comes to play. But we also have a very, very good chance of an American man making it to the semis because in one part of the bracket, we have Francis Tiafo versus Rinki Hijikata, who is an unseated player from Australia. Crocky! Crocky! And Tommy Paul and Ben Shelton next to him. So one of those guaranteed to make the quarters. Tiafo very highly favored to make the quarters and face them. I think there's a very good chance we at least get one American man in the semis, which will be fun.
1: We'll see what happens over the next couple days with that. Tiafo against, I think it was Alcaraz that he faced in the semi. Is that who it was? At Wimbledon. Uh, I believe so. That was the most I've cared about men's tennis in a really fucking long time. Well, that was the U.S. Open I, last year, actually. Was it really? Is it, yeah. Dude, time is such an illusion. September, September 9th,
2: 2022.
1: Wow. Time is an illusion. Time, time is very illusory, but guys are not.
0: Time may indeed be an illusion, but your time dear listener, certainly is valuable. And we appreciate that you've chosen to spend it with us again. And we appreciate however many of the past hundred of these you've chosen to spend with us. Some special thanks as always to our producer, Craig, and all the coders behind him, as well as to our musical director, Don Ham for that lovely theme music. But really it is to you, dear listener, that we want to thank the most because it's not like we get anything out of doing this every week other than the joy of sharing it between ourselves and sharing it with the people that we know continue to tune in. So thank you for being those people. And uh, we'll get to do it all again next Monday when we relitigate this most recent season before, I think a very exciting slate of some bonus episodes. Anything you guys want to say before we wrap up this week?
2: Watch Guy Martin's videos on YouTube and BBC because they're very fun.
1: Some people, when they get to the Champions League, might want an easy group but I'm a Newcastle fan and I want the group of death and we're not stuck in there with PSG Dortmund and AC Milan. <laughs> They're stuck in there with us. Killing Mbappe has never seen anything like the Toon army in full throat. And you know, what's going to happen. He's going to fall so in love and he's going to join the Toon <laughs> army, baby.
2: If you can't beat him, impress him a lot while you lose five, nothing. So he comes and joins your oil rich team from his oil rich team.
1: Oil money runs the world baby.
0: Thank you once again folks for these past 100 and for hopefully yet another 100. I'm James. I'm the very special guest Xavier.
1: And I'm Diaz and as everybody's favorite grammatically correct sentence goes, guy guy, guy guy, guy guy, guy guy.
2: I'm also very excited about, what is that, Diaz's KFC? Or is that
1: Popeye's? I can't tell. No, it's, it's, it's KFC. It's KFC. Um, I'm not proud of it, but I am eating it. <laughs> <laughs>